I'd like to tell you a little story from a movie. In, in The Count of Monte Cristo, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. I think it was from the year 2000 or 2002, somewhere right in there. Um, there are these two best friends, uh, Edmund and Fernand. And they have this little ongoing game that they play with one another. Uh, they have this little chess piece, and it's a king piece of, for, from a chess set. And when one of them does something good or something noteworthy, the other one will give the, the, the chess piece, the king piece, and say, kings to you, you know, kind of like king, king of the day or something like that. But if you've ever seen the movie or read the book, you know that Fernand betrayed Edmund. And so this, this symbol of their friendship, it, it turned out to be a friendship that was, not so, um, that was not so durable after all. Fernand betrays Edmund and he has to go live on this island prison. And he loses a great portion of his life and he loses the love of his life because of this betrayal of his friend. But then at the end of the movie, there's this showdown between the two. And Fernand comes to this place where he expects to find these big chests of treasure and he expects to steal his friend's treasure. He, he's basically betraying his friend for the second time in the movie. But he shows up and these chests of, of what is supposed to be treasure are just filled with sand. And then finally there's this one chest and it has a lock on it. And he takes his, his, his gun out and he shoots the lock off of it and opens it up. And there's nothing in the chest except this chest piece. The king. The king piece. And then of course Jim Caviezel comes in, for not, or Ed, Edmond. And he says, kings to you. Right. In other words, there's this in this movie, there's this symbol of friendship. There's this symbol that shows up at these very important moments in the story. And it tells a story. In the same way, in the final scene in John's gospel, there's this rich image. And the truth that it teaches us is deeper than any movie. And we're going to talk about what this image is in a moment, but I'd ask you right now, would you just pray with me as we approach God's Word? Lord, you are good to us, and you are kind. And I ask, God, that now as we approach your Word, that you would help us to see beautiful things in your Word. I pray that as we look to this final scene in John's gospel, that we would be led to worship you because we see that sinners like us can be restored. We see that, yes, believers will suffer for following Christ, but that every suffering that we endure is worth it. And that your word brings us life. Would you help us to see these things? Would you help us to worship you because of them? In Jesus' name, amen. I am, I'm just going to take a little segue right now. I, 
I don't know if y'all hear this, but I'm, I'm getting a lot of feedback. And so what, what that's doing is it's causing me not to yell very much, which makes me sad um, because that, that's what I love to do when I get going. But I, I don't know if it would help, Matt, but maybe, maybe you could just cut, cut this off. Okay, I think that's a, that's a ton better. So now I get to yell at you. Okay, perfect. We're going to roll now. Uh, in, in John chapter 21, we're going to look at the first 17 verses to see this truth. And that truth is that sinners can be restored. Sinners can be restored. Would you read with me in John chapter 21, the first 17 verses? It says this, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they, said to the, and they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, this may sound to you like a very familiar passage of Scripture, and that's because it is. A very similar thing happened in Luke 5, where they go out into the boat, and they're fishing, and they can't catch anything. And Jesus says, cast your boats on the other side. And they try to haul in the load of fish, but it says that the nets were, were breaking and, they, and they, it was about, the boat was about to be overtaken by this great load of fish that they were hauling in. Well, something uh, similar seems to happen to them now on the other side of the cross. See, Jesus has died on the cross. He's been buried. He was resurrected. And what the disciples are doing is they're waiting for, for Jesus to make good on his promise to send the Holy Spirit. There's kind of this little downtime. And what do we find the disciples doing? Well, I guess they're just doing all that they know to do. They're fishermen, so they go back to their work. We find them here in John 21 doing something incredibly ordinary. Now, this should not signal to us that they are somehow not believing in Jesus. I mean, they just have the realities of life. They're fishermen. They have to provide. They go back to their tasks, and they do what they know to do until Jesus tells them what's next. Now, this is just a... I just want to make this point in passing Friends, if you don't know what to do next, I think we have an example here in John 21 of genuine followers of Jesus just doing what they know to do, doing what they know to do to be faithful right now until God gives further direction. And so right now, if you, if you feel kind of perplexed because you feel like you need to be doing something incredible, but you don't know what that is, I would just encourage you, 99% of the Christian life is just being faithful to what God has called you to do. It's just being faithful in your marriage. It's just being faithful at your job to, to do what God has given your hands to do in that moment until he shows you what's next. And that's what we find the disciples here doing. They're just, they're just quite frankly, doing the ordinary things until Jesus shows back up. We, we find in this story that uh, they, they are able to haul these fish in, and the Bible says that they get an exact number, 153 fish, it says uh, in, in verse 11. Now, we don't know why there's this number here. I kind of think that it's because they, they pulled all these fish in, and they're like, can you believe how many fish we got? We got to count them, right? The guys are never going to believe this. And they count them like, it was 153, but they had this very exact number for how many fish they brought in. But I want to draw your attention to verse 9 as it teaches something incredibly, incredibly beautiful. And we see if, if, if 
John has kind of a chess piece, this, this image that shows up at really important points. This would be one of them. In verse 9, it says this. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So that's a difference from the last time this happened. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He asked him a question one time. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. I don't know if you have picked up on the, the significance of what's going on here, but friends, it's incredibly beautiful. We see a picture here of Jesus restoring Peter. I mean, let's remember, the last time that Peter did something three times in a row, what was it? He was denying Jesus. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but in John 18, the Bible says this. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So this is Jesus' darkest moment. He's, he's not going in there, if, if we can speak that way. Of course, a very dark moment would be in the garden when God the Father turns his face away. But now Jesus is going into the high priest and he's about to go to this kangaroo court and basically get judged for things that are false. Verse 16 in John 18 says, But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went in and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? And Peter said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. This is deep imagery that the Bible is using to teach us a deep truth. In John 18, there was a charcoal fire. And Peter was there, and Peter had three opportunities. And at every opportunity, at each one of those three times where Jesus could have said, Hey guys, I don't care what you do to me. I don't care if you kill me. I'm with Jesus. All three times he failed around that charcoal fire. 
But here in John 21, as the scene is closing, and John 21 is basically like the epilogue. You know, you get to the end of a book and there's an epilogue. It's almost like this own little self-contained story. That's why I'm treating it in just one sermon, because it's one story. We see another charcoal fire. And the disciples are gathered around this charcoal fire. And what does Jesus do? Jesus gives Peter three opportunities to get right what he got wrong at the last charcoal fire. Friends, this is a beautiful picture of restoration. And I think what it should signal to us is this, that even if we have failed and failed multiple times in the past, there is a treasure trove of grace available to the one who is willing to turn around. And Jesus is willing to give those opportunities. You see, Jesus didn't just cut Peter off, did he? He said, oh yeah, Peter's that guy that failed me three times. And in my darkest moment, he kind of abandoned me and left me there as I was going into the high priest. So three strikes and you're out, Peter. That was not Jesus' heart. Jesus' heart was a heart for restoration, and for redemption. And he gives Peter these three opportunities to confess Christ. Again, what this tells us, Jesus is in the business of life restoration. I would just ask you, have you failed? Have you failed grievously, publicly? Are you ashamed? Are you racked with guilt? And does that sense of guilt keep you from closeness to God? Are you convinced that your past mistakes prevent you from ever being useful to the Lord again? Jesus is putting on a clinic here for you in John 21. And he's convincing you and he's seeking to convince me and all of us that none of us are ever too far gone for restoration, for forgiveness. Peter, who frequently shoots off at the mouth, Peter who moves his feet before he moves his mind, and Peter who, yes, denied Jesus three times in a row, is now taken up by Christ and restored. What this tells us is that Jesus can restore you too. And I hope you believe that. There's a second point that's taught here. And that second point is this. The path to that restoration comes through repentance. The path to restoration comes through repentance. I want to draw to your attention how Jesus seeks to restore Peter. Jesus doesn't give him some kind of cheap grace. At every opportunity, Jesus gives Peter an opportunity to serve him, right? What he's teaching is that genuine life change, genuine, we could say, conversion involves a change of behavior. Look what he says. He says, Peter, uh, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes. But see, this is not enough for Peter because Peter is so quick to say the right thing. Peter shoots off at the mouth, right? It's, it's his track record. And so Jesus says, okay, Peter, if you want to put some teeth behind those words, feed my lambs. And he asks him a second time, do you love me? 
Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Right? Do something about it. The confession of the mouth is not enough. The, the, the evidence of genuine change is a life of service and a changed manner of living. And then the third time, of course, Peter becomes grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And perhaps it's clicking with Peter now. Peter's hands and his feet work a little quicker than his mind does a lot of times. And he says, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says to him, he kind of combines the last two phrases and fuses them into one. And he says, feed my sheep. See, what's happening here is Jesus is not only giving Peter an opportunity to, to say the right words, but he's giving the opportunity to evidence that he has been changed by a change of life. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, and I hope that you can see how meaningful it is. Um, the second truth that we see comes in verses 18 and 19 where we learn that believers will suffer. You see, this is not enough. This is not the end of what Jesus has to say to Peter. Is Peter, okay, feed my sheep. You know, you're good to go. He tells him what is coming for those who genuinely follow Christ. Look in verses 18 and 19. The Bible says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, as Jesus is still talking to Peter, okay? When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. See what's happening here. For, for Jesus, following him is always spoken in the same context as death. Following Jesus, if anyone wants to follow me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. It's what Jesus says. In verses 18 and 19, what we see is a strange picture. It's, it's kind of cryptic, and honestly, I didn't know what to make of it until I did some, some reading and some study this week. But, but what, is, what is being told here, thankfully, Jesus many times interprets his own difficult statements. He says, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, and you could run wherever you wanted to run, but when you're old, someone else will dress you and take you by the hand and lead you in places that you do not want to go. And, but Jesus says this is not just a commentary on how kids run around and do what they want, and old people many times have to be taken care of. What he's, what he's saying is in verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. What Jesus is saying to Peter is, Peter, when you're young, you got to go and maybe you got to minister and you got to go on these missionary journeys, but when you're old, somebody else is going to take you by the hand and take you somewhere you don't want it to go. And that's what your death is going to look like. We know from church tradition that Peter was crucified. We hear from church tradition that when he was about to be crucified, he requested to be crucified upside down. Because he did not count himself worthy to die in the same way that Jesus did. So this is a foreshadowing of what's coming for Peter. Jesus says, okay, Peter, 
Now you've corrected what you did wrong. Three times you said the wrong thing. Now three times you've said the right thing. What's coming for you though, and what's coming for every believer in some degree, is a life of suffering. Whether we die like Peter did, being crucified for our faith, it's not likely for many of us in this room, but the reality is for all of us, our lives should look like death. Should look like dying to self. The path to following Jesus comes through suffering. <clears throat> Peter probably died in Rome during the time of the emperor Nero. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. The, the history seems to be from Josephus that Nero either set fire to the city of Rome or had it done by henchmen, set fire to the city of Rome just so that he could in turn blame it on the Christians and make life difficult for them. Peter's life was a life marked by suffering and death. And friends, I know that by the world's standards, it doesn't sell but a life of following Jesus for all of us, if we're doing it right, will also involve suffering. In our fight with sin, it will not many times feel like victory. In our fight for reconciled relationships with other people, it will not all the time feel like victory. And perhaps you may encounter financial loss. Perhaps you may encounter a job loss for following Jesus. But every suffering that you have to endure in the way of following Jesus will be altogether and ultimately worth it. It's this truth. Let me just try to apply this for a moment. It's this truth. When we see Peter walking toward his death, it's this truth that makes this false gospel of easy believism sound so foolish. Right? There are some who would have you think that being a Christian is simply about mouthing some words, but we know from Peter's life that that's not the case. There are some who would say, yeah, come on down front and pray with the preacher and fill out a card and then go live however you want to because you said the words. And what John 21 leaves us off with is a picture not only of rightly spoken words, but a rightly lived life. Of course, it's not that our good deeds or our changed life saves us, but it's that the evidence of a changed life is renovated behavior. And so we, when we see someone who, who claims the name of Christ, but is walking in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, these are people, friends, they don't just need a behavior adjustment, they need evangelism. They need to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel says that the way to get to God comes through the gate of repentance. And that is my fear for many who have heard this gospel of easy believism. Wouldn't it make a mockery of Peter's life? It's like, yeah, if, if you want to come to Christ, just, just come to Christ. And just say a few words. But if you want to keep living with your girlfriend, go for it. 
And Peter was a chump, man. I mean, he went to the cross and was crucified upside down. Peter didn't really have to do that if he just understood what we did today. Why would Peter have to suffer for his faith? Friends, following Christ comes with a cost. But every cost is altogether worth it. Because following Jesus brings freedom. And the sweetness, the sweetness of knowing Christ makes any pain and any sacrifice that you make, any sacrifice you have to make to follow Jesus will be worth it when you know the sweetness of Jesus. And that is the gospel. That is the gospel that He is better and that He is more. So I can't, I can't try to attract you to Christ by telling you that it's a wise business decision. And if you just calculate it out, maybe you'll come to the right conclusion. But what I can tell you is that following Christ will be costly, but it will be worth it. Knowing God is worth it. The last thing I want to leave you with is this, the last point. The Word brings life. Verses 20 through 25. The Word brings life. The Gospel of John here, it closes exactly in the way that we should expect it. Remember how many times we have come across this phrase where it says, and I have written these things or I've said these things so that you may believe. You see that? Right here, the Gospel of John closes in these six verses in a way that just dovetails, it just meshes right with that message. Look what it says in the last few verses, verses 20 through 25. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who was it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And so there's a conversation that uh, kind of precedes these last two verses that are very important about how Jesus said something and the people misunderstood it. But it's here for us. But look here at these last two verses. Beautiful, beautiful closing to these 21 chapters, and as of today, friends, 46 sermons in the Gospel of John, dating all the way back to the summer of 2021. And we finally come to a close here, as best I can do. It's been an imperfect job, but I want to leave you with these last two verses. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What we're left with in these last two verses is kind of two truths. That Jesus did a, a ton of stuff, and you could never fill all the books and all the libraries and all the world to tell of what Jesus did and the beauty of them. But what we have been given here in John's gospel is enough for us to believe. 
It is enough for the Spirit of God to come in our hearts and to change us. I mean, think about what we've seen. Think about the pictures that have come to life. In in John's Gospel, Jesus has been presented as the true and better Passover lamb. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to go free for that night, if you wanted judgment to not come to your house, you put blood over the blood of the lamb over your door. And if your family was under the blood, the angel of death would pass over and you would go free and you would not meet judgment. In the same way, Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb in the New Testament. If you are under his blood, you will go free, not just for one night, but for all eternity. We've seen that Jesus is the true and better manna. In the Old Testament, the people were hungry in the wilderness and God sent them bread, right? And they ate for that day. But remember, they they couldn't store it up because it would spoil. They ate for one day and their stomachs were filled and God allowed them to live. But Jesus in the New Testament is the true and better manna. He says, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never hunger again, right? And so we see Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. He's the true and better manna. He's the true and better temple. You see, the people are so concerned about where is the right place to go and worship God? Where is God's presence? Is it on that mountain or on that mountain? The woman at the well asked, and people are concerned about the temple. Is the temple where God's presence is? Jesus comes, and he says, I am the true and better temple, Basically, I am the presence of God. And if you want the presence of God with you, trust in me. Believe in me. Jesus is lastly the true and better rock. In the Old Testament, the people strike the rock. Remember, Moses strikes the rock and water comes out. The thirsty people who are about to die of thirst get their fill for one day. Moses strikes the rock, water comes out, and the people live. In the New Testament, the true and better rock, Jesus, is struck. And because he was struck on the cross, a water flow has come out, and whoever drinks of his water will never thirst again. Jesus is the true and better of all of the pictures in the Old Testament. And we see this in John's Gospel. And as I think back over these last 46 sermons in John, all the way back to June of 2021, there are people in this room who at the beginning of this sermon series were not believing, were not trusting in Jesus. But they are now. There are people who had not been baptized then, but they have been now. And I'm not saying that it's because of my sermon series, but what I am saying is that the Word of God always does its work. And John's Gospel has given us everything that we need to believe. And so my question for you, at the end of sermon number 46, after a year and a half, I'm wondering... If you have come to trust in Christ through the message of the gospel that says of itself, it was given to us that you may believe. Maybe that's your story. I would invite you to come and make it public today. Maybe it's not your story. And and what you have gleaned from this is, is, is encouragement to see the beauty of Christ and to be reminded of it so that you might be better equipped to tell someone else the message. I hope that's your story. Maybe you've been encouraged in your own life and, and you've seen the, the this reality that John keeps 
talking about, this light and darkness, that, that we are either in walking in the light or we are still in darkness, just like Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus shows up three times in the Gospel of John. The first time, he doesn't understand. The second time, he still doesn't understand, but he's kind of on Jesus' team. And the third time, he's coming and worshiping Jesus by taking his body after the crucifixion. I don't know where you are. Maybe you're Nicodemus in John chapter 3, still skeptical. Maybe you're Nicodemus in later in the middle of John's gospel, kind of somewhat okay with Jesus, but still not giving your life to him. Or maybe you're Nicodemus in John 20, worshiping him. But whatever situation that you find yourself in today, I pray that you would go home today and think about what work God's Word in John's Gospel has done in your life. What ways was there, was there a little bit of creeping unbelief in your heart that God has shined His light in and now you have come to trust Him even more and love Him even more? Or perhaps today, as I said before, you have come to believe Friends, today is the day of salvation. I pray that if there's a decision that you need to make or something that God has done in you that you need to make public, that you would find that this time of response um, as we sing together would be the appropriate time for you to follow God. Uh, Friends, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and then we will respond just as we do every week. Pray with me.